Welcome to the Open Source Startup Podcast. I'm Robbie from Cowboy Ventures and awesome co-host Tim Chen of Essence VC. And today we are super excited to have the co-founders of Hasura on. We have both Bajoshi and Tenmai, and they are going to talk about how Hasura provides the instant GraphQL on the, on anybody's data. So welcome. We're really excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having us. Super excited to be here. Thanks, Robbie. Hey, Tim. Nice to be here. Awesome. So let's go all the way back to the start. Where did the idea for Hasura come from? I can take that. So I think Tanma and I started working together at a time when we were just like itching to get started and build stuff for uh, build products and take ideas sort of to market. And while doing that and experimenting with a few, we realized that it wasn't trivial. It took a lot of time to actually go from idea to something that didn't suck as like a first prototype. And somewhere along the way, we realized that that needs to get easy. And that was actually the most exciting problem to solve. So that was sort of a realization that happened. And But actually, the journey for us while we were building this, we actually had a consulting company. We built a lot of products for lots of different types of companies, different industries, different sizes of companies, started off building products for startups, ended up in like two, three years, we were building uh, projects for very large enterprises. And all along the time, you know, we were also building things internally, just passion projects and things like that. So we built a lot of projects. And while doing this, we kept trying to like look at what would it look like and what would make all of this easier and agnostic across industry and type of company. And that's kind of what kept Hasura brewing over a few years. And then when we finally, you know, um, everything came together and we put it together and launched as a product in 2018. So that's sort of how it happened gradually. And then, you know, the company formed around it. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. And we're, I think we're super intrigued about the open source birth story that happened here. And so maybe walk us through sort of like how you started. Because I think there's a lot of interesting nuggets and pieces of choices you guys made back in, even back in 2016 of how you make like the, the language you used to build like Haskell, right? And, and start all of that. So what, what, how did it start? Where do you even think about the idea to do a real-time GraphQL engine? That's a good question. So let's, uh, let's step back into history a little bit. When we were kind of building products ourselves, the way Arushi was referring to, and, and we had kind of a platform team where our responsibility, like the responsibility of the platform team was to build tools to make development and the process of development faster for the rest of our consulting team. And one of the things, and we built a bunch of tools, and one of the tools that we built was this data API, where our kind of hypothesis was that product development is kind of evolving to go into the direction of everything being on the edge and data and logic kind of being centralized. And that centralized data was kind of floating and the tooling and the ability to kind of build products and applications and services on the edge was continuously improving. And this middle piece, which was this data API, was this huge time suck. And that's what we're seeing today. Like today we're living that reality, right? That kind of, that reality has played out. If you, you'll see almost like a new database being created every month or so and getting launched, right? You'll see innovations at the edge that are just nonstop, right? Whether it's the JavaScript ecosystem with new frameworks or it's cloud vendors or new vendors that are kind of these meta cloud vendors, right? That simplify this process of deploying on the edge and stuff like that. And it's crazy. But the piece that we're unblocking is essentially this idea of connecting the centralized stuff to the edge stuff, right? Uh, which is which is the data API, which traditionally people build by hand. And so our platform team built this tool out internally. We were not using GraphQL. We had our own kind of, our own GraphQL-like API 
when we built this, we were like, you know, got pretty productive with this. Maybe this is a product thing, right? Like, so maybe we should go take this to market. And um, I think Raroshi was the one who pulled the trigger and said, hey, if we want to focus on this, then let's just, let's stop and shut down the consulting firm and let's focus on taking this product to market, right? And so we did that. We shut down consulting firm, a bunch of us on the platform side, we came out and we started taking, we started figuring out how we want to take this product to market. In those first few months after founding and where we had kind of this initial technology, we started taking this to developers and seeing kind of how they were using it. And we got kind of this feedback because GraphQL had just launched a few years ago that this looks a lot like GraphQL. Like, shouldn't we do GraphQL, right? And we were like, hmm, <laughs> let's, uh, I think that's the value prop of what people want with GraphQL and what we're doing. It's kind of a match made in heaven. So uh, we decided to add GraphQL support. And then we also realized that, and this was through our experience as well, that when people are kind of adopting software to use, especially in the critical paths, like, you know, stuff that is, stuff that basically, software that kind of decides whether your application is going to run or, you know, have downtime, that kind of critical path software, right? Versus kind of software that is more non-critical path, like your design tools and collaboration tools and stuff like that, right? That kind of software has to be open source. Otherwise, people will not use it and bring it into their environment, right? It's almost kind of like it has to be open source, right? Um, it can have a managed version. It can have a closed source version, right? But the specification has to be open at the very least, right? And it has to be open source in the way that it's easy to consume because otherwise people will not kind of download it inside an enterprise environment and try it out, right? And that's kind of just, that, that was just the reality of the world. And this is also the reality of the world today. And that's kind of how we're progressing, right? And I've managed a version of this, but like I need it to be open so that we're continuously innovating and the industry is continuously innovating, right? So with those two things in mind, we kind of were like, okay, let's add GraphQL support to this initial version of the data API that we had, which was like a fraction of the features that we have today. And let's make sure that it's open source. And we did that, and then we launched in uh, 2018. So that's kind of the full story. The Haskell bit was, I think, just the initial piece of technology was, you know, a compiler. And it just was something that made a lot of sense at that point. And it was also something that it was like two people almost could do the work of like a large team when we were starting out. So it just it just fit for what we were trying to build initially. And this again, that layer that we set at. So that's sort of how Haskell came into the picture and made itself into our logo and things like that. We have a little lambda <laughs> on the logo, which today also scales to it being so, like enabling serverless applications. So that scaled well, I should say. <laughs> awesome. Um, so now we're at 2018 and you've added GraphQL support. What happened? Because I think like one of the misconceptions that we talk about a lot on this podcast is just how long it can take sometimes for open source projects to get momentum. And it seems from the outside, like all of a sudden everybody was using this. It was the industry standard. But what like what was the case for like in your all's experience? Like how long did it take? How did you get early adoption? Like when what were the moments or users that got you really excited or use cases? And just like the specifics along that journey would be really helpful. Yeah, I think in hindsight, we can break that down into perhaps, let's say three checkpoints or, or the way one of our seed investors puts it, that, that maybe three checkpoints in two phases, right? So the two phases are the first phase is project market fit. And then the second phase is product market fit. So the project market fit phase is when the open source project being used by developers and is being used by developers successfully, right? So that's kind of like this project market fit piece. And then there's kind of product market fit, which is that there's a, a managed version or a commercial version or like the business element of how you're going to use this open source product as part of your company's kind of business strategy. 
And that is achieving kind of a monetization motion and what is traditionally just product market fit is the second phase, right? Now, in the first phase, and I'm sure you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think of it as maybe two phases. The first phase is you, for us, in for our kind of software, is the first phase is that there is a way to unlock penetration with an open source community. So what is that open source community that is small enough where you are the best solution, but large enough that it's valuable and there'll be kind of this viral loop and developers will talk to each other and you keep growing. So what is the biggest, smallest group where you are kind of that best product where you can actually penetrate the community, right? The second phase of that, and for us, which was the second checkpoint of that project market fit was this penetration distribution angle. And then the second piece is, for us, it was really important because our entire monetization story would be based off not the number of users and developers, but the mission criticality of the software. So the mission criticality of the application. It was really important that our applications started getting used in mission-critical products because that's how we monetize, right? It's um, You think about Mongo as an open-source database or Kafka, then we can confluent, right? The checkpoint for them was that there was enough mission-critical usage of Kafka or Mongo for them to then start going towards product market fit for their commercial versions, right? Because they monetize on the fact that it's mission-critical. It's very different from where you have a large number of developers and, and you kind of monetize on the developers' collaboration workflows and, and design workflows and on tooling on the other side, where the number of developers becomes more important rather than the number of mission-critical products, right? So for us, in the project market phase, I would say it was kind of understanding and unlocking penetration and then achieving mission-critical usage, right? And then the second phase was product market fit, which is you know building out our commercial version, our managed cloud service, and then making sure that that was adding commercial value at the price points that we wanted with our audience. So those were, I would say, the two phases. And it's, it's kind of both like you have to keep doing it, right? Because product changes and industry changes and ecosystem changes. But those are kind of the two broad phases and maybe the three checkpoints there. I'm happy to unpack that a little bit also in terms of, I think, like some of the things that we did initially, right? We launched on Hacker News. You know, that seems to be a pretty common, like it, it, it's a thing you can't really end up uh, planning for that, but that sort of happened. And then it was really like for us, it was open source. There was no way for us to know who's using it and whatnot. So it was very, very important for us in those early days to make sure that anybody who was using it, like they could get in touch with us if they wanted. So, you know, whether that's, we had a Discord server and we just made sure that literally everyone on the on the team, every single person on the team, did not matter which team they were in, were actually in there. And we were just hyper reactive to you know the early folks trying it out because really like you really cherish those early users and so that was really like it, and, and like Tanmay said it was almost like you can think of it as like those large like launch and then there's a loop around it where you're listening to them and that sort of repeats but that early process is I think super critical as you're talking to them and then that kind of got us into actually understanding where people are starting to use it and really helped us build those longer term relationships with some of the community members and kicked off our community. So I think it was so it was like that hack news followed, but followed by like very intense feedback loops. Like there is a GitHub issue, you know, we respond to it, we get back to that user and really be very reactive. So we kind of continued to do that. And that was really how that it wasn't a spike and then, okay, no one hears about it anymore, but it was sort of a spike and then sustained 
involvement with the community and the early users. So I actually want to talk a little bit about the project market fit, the initial phase, because you definitely talk a lot about the good points. You had to find a place where it's small enough you can penetrate, large enough you can grow, and the feedback loop. I think we all know, and we heard so many different stories of that hypothetically, philosophically, we know how that works. But in practicality, it's everyone's execution is so different. You know, when I looked at the earliest 2018 posts of what people are talking about Hasura, they just say how good it is, how great it is. Pretty much not that long after launch, actually. So I really was intrigued. What made Hasura great almost from day one? What does it mean to be the best you know, engine here? Because I think there isn't not just the only option, actually. You're not the only thing that actually we have API GraphQL for data, but it's, people saw it was one of the best things. And I saw how people are so excited for it. That's really hard to pinpoint, I realized. Like, what is specifics? What do you have in mind? Like, okay, I just, this should be the best things we put in there. Is it all from day one we knew about it? Or, or there are things you picked up along the way that started to become like, okay, we know this, we're the best product. I let that might take that one, the initial thing. It was actually, it was, it was something we planned, I would say, pretty deliberately for. And, uh, you know, uh, it was a big part of that early, early success, I think. Yeah, I think, I think it was, uh, I think it was be conscious of the fact that we kind of change behavior. And if you're changing behavior in the way that things are being done, the only way that that's possible is by making sure that the experience is better. So for us, it was really important that the big enough small set of people understood what Hasura is and got successful with it within 30 seconds. And so we just ruthlessly optimized for that. So within 30 seconds of starting Hasura, you would achieve that point. And then you'd be like, oh, this is magic, right? And that's kind of what kick-started that process. That's kind of important. I think it is important for every product. But for us, it was particularly important. Because we we are kind of changing behavior in that sense, right? It's not an incremental improvement to something that you that you do today. It's it's a completely different way of doing things. And if it is completely different, if it is a completely different way of doing things, it must be worth the mental churn that it causes. And the only way that it's worth the mental churn that it causes is it drastically reduces my time from the alternative that I had for for again for our kind of space. And and we've seen that play out over time as well because I think. You know, we, we took the approach of sort of saying that, you know, we are not going to tell you that this change of behavior is what you should do or it's the better way of building something because our consumers are developers. You know, developers are making their choices. They want to be in control of how they're building their software. You don't want somebody to come and tell you that, you know, I think this is the better way. Definitely not a vendor, right? You might listen to a friend who you respect a lot or you might listen to a colleague and, you know, try it out. But, um, you know, you don't want to listen to somebody who says, okay, this is a, you know, this is a more optimal way or this is a better way to do it. So the the only thing that made sense was to show them that. And we've seen that play out in different ways. We've seen that play out in, you know, one person in the team sort of seeing it and then, going to another person in their team and saying, hey, you know, you have seen this Hasura thing, you should try it out. And they're like, nah, you come to me with new software every day, but I don't want to listen to you. But then the first person kind of rallies for it and then they try it out. And they're like, ah, okay, I have been building this code by hand for the last three weeks and I can see the next three months of my roadmap is also this. And I was able to do that with Hasura in, you know, whatever, in like 30 minutes of sitting down with it. And then they're like, okay, it's critical part. So 
you know, this is my checklist. Is the performance good? Is the security good? Does it solve all of these different things? And they actually, some of our users early days showed us these presentations that they did internally, where, you know, they're slowly sort of, there are some champions, but then it's just, it just doesn't make sense. You're like, oh, this is taking away this whole piece in the middle. And they have these checklists and they run it through a like a rigorous sort of test. And then they're like, oh, okay. I guess you could write software this way and it makes sense and it helps us ship faster and the performance is great and this, you know, I don't have any concerns with security. So that sort of really like established that loop, but it started with that 30 seconds aha moment or time to API or whatever we call it, right? Yeah, when I look at the, I'm actually reading your very first Hacker New launch, you know, comments and posts. And it's really interesting because I think definitely we see the points but there's actually not as crazy a lot of activity. So as you said, it grew over time. But number one question I saw was, how does it compare to Prisma? Because there is already a somewhat of a confusion about, okay, what does this layer looks like different? So there are some things to clarify, right? And But also a lot of people really love the documentation of the website. So I guess maybe we can go down to that a little bit. Like how do you figure out what to call yourself or tell yourself, hey, we're... we're we are in this realms of GraphQL on our data, right? But we're different. And I, I, I saw how you try to explain it back in 2018. There's nuances, so obvious, I feel like. Uh, what, what do you learn over time? And we can also talk about like what made your website and documentation so good uh, from launch, because people really love that too. I'll start with the website and the documentation. It was similar to what I was saying in terms of, we actually went the opposite way of, you know, everyone says on the website, you talk about the value, but not what it does. And we chose to actually just tell you what it does so that you figure out the value, because the value could be different depending on who you are as a developer, what team on what use case. So our website was just instant real-time GraphQL on Postgres, which is the data, uh, the database that we supported when we launched. So we just kind of told you what it did, and we just were very specific about exactly what it did. Because Hasura is kind of magic. It just gives you stuff. But developers don't like magic unless they really understand what's going on. So it was very important for us to be like, you're going to get a magical experience, but we're going to tell you exactly what is this magic. So you never feel like we're taking away control or anything. And you can actually, and a lot of stuff in the product actually talks about that. Like we generate, we actually generate a SQL query for a GraphQL query. But you can look at that SQL query. You can take it to your DBA they can understand what it's doing. So everybody kind of understands what Hasura is doing under the hood. It's just that we do it for you and you don't need to do it yourself. So from a website perspective, that was the approach we took. We were like, let's, we're just going to spell it out. We're just going to spell out what we do. And we're going to try and put in as many examples so you can see what it means. And I think the documentation sort of took that same approach. Lots of sort of you know, sample code to try that out for you to be able to get successful. Again, we didn't really get into the use cases or how you would use it or why you would use it. We kind of stayed away from that. We're just like, this is what you can do and this is what you can get. And here's a sample query, try it out. I think our style was also fairly different in the sense that it was very technical. So we leaned in and we still do lean in quite heavily into into that style, which is that I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, right? And so time will tell. Uh, I mean, time has told a part of this to me and time will tell the rest of this journey, right? Is that we are very authentic with what we claim we do 
and the way the product does it. And so it's it's a very developer first thing, right? Very ruthlessly developer first. It's like it it goes straight into the brass tacks so of this is what it does, this is the value that it has, this is how it works, and now we kind of you go figure out and use it, right? Now what this often and this has its kind of pros and cons, right? The pro is that when you kind of get champions, you get champions for life, right? Who use it, understand it, and understand why it works, right? And the con of it is that maybe your aperture is not wide enough. And to your point, people start thinking a little bit about like, why is it different from X? How is it? Isn't it similar to Y, right? Like they'll have like these different types of questions because the aperture is not wide enough on like the value focus is different, right? Usually with a product, you're thinking like, let's make the value focus a little bit different and as differentiated as possible. Uh, whereas we're kind of keeping that entire piece in saying, here's what it does. And if you're using these technologies, you'll, you, you'll know why it's valuable to you. That's the kind of non-answer to your question. <laughs> yeah, I think sort of fast forwarding to today in terms of, I think your first the first part of your question was sort of how do we talk about it today? <laughs> Honestly, we haven't changed it that much. We've sort of kept to that but and I, I think this is going to evolve over the next few months and the reason for that is I think today four years in the use cases there are plenty we have you know adoption and really really large like in the in an enterprise environment in like indie startup environments and dev agency environments and whatnot so I think in terms of sort of starting to broaden that aperture and uh, talk about it a little bit more uh, from there is also something that we will start to do, but we've been very conscious of not doing it too early. But I think I think it's, it's working out now. It's very interesting to us for now, like when we go to our customers and users and kind of ask them, how do you define Hasura internally? What is it for you, right? And, uh, you know, putting all of that together because there's, all of that built up over the last few years, I feel like we can sort of slowly start making, you know, that transition to how we start talking about it while making sure that, you know, we're never, like we stick to our roots and what we kind of know works. I love that. And one of the things I noticed about both the way you talk about case studies, but also on the GraphQL engine, um, open source is how specific you get around the value that users get from using you, like as far as, days to production or like 10x faster API development. And I'm I'm really curious when that kind of language, because it's so powerful, but when you started to incorporate that and who were maybe some of the first users that you got that feedback from and also how you got that feedback, especially when you're in the phase of project market fit, because to, to your point, you don't know always who all the users are and what they're using you for. You do get that data over time, but the specifics I imagine just drive adoption and get users really excited? And at what point you started to actually get those data points from your community? Yeah, I think we did not actually have any of those during that project market fit phase. I think phase, I think it was in this, like, it, it was like almost kind of in the product market or post-product market fit sort of phase. But I think the 10x faster was literally like, you know, we would talk to customers and they'd be like, oh, you know, this would take me uh, four quarters and I actually just built it now in like a week, two weeks, or this would take me three months. And I think one of our conferences, we had someone from a healthcare company uh, from Philips, yeah, who actually spoke about, you know, uh, putting out an enterprise grade software in the healthcare industry takes about four years and they were able to build and ship a product in under a year. And that's the whole product, right? Not even just talking about the API, which is the piece that we 
we deal with. So we saw this through several and we actually looked at it and we we're like, ah, this 10x is not, an, it's, it's literally the number that everyone's telling us. And so that's, so I think this was maybe in terms of timeline wise, I would say we only incorporated this maybe sometime last year, like it was pretty recent as sort of the first step of starting to put down what our users and customers have been articulating to us. Yeah. And so we talked about like the good things you did right off the gates. And obviously there's a lot of iteration and process. What is the hardest part you have to learn the first year post-launch? Like what are the things that like, wow, I didn't know we had to do this or wow, this is actually really hard to figure out. What was actually the biggest learning or challenges you had to face? That's like a like a everyday kind of question. Like, <laughs> what is the biggest challenge? Well, you know, yesterday it's a very continuous journey kind of thing, right? It's like because every checkpoint that you reach or every every time you make a little bit of progress, there's a new biggest challenge, right? So I think it's hard to perhaps like generalize from from that point of view, right? But I think if we think about it as what are the problems or what are the challenges that prior awareness of would have helped and accelerated things. And and we kind of think about it from, from that point of view, like what were those kind of most dramatic things that if we had awareness of maybe a quarter, two quarters before, you know, we would have been faster about things. I would say that for me personally, it was that the relentless and nonstop focus on developer experience and working with the community, it's not a thing that you can do for a little bit and then stop doing and then restart, and then stop doing as you kind of think about certain product goals or product checkpoints, right? It has to be something that starts off initially from like a as many hands, all hands on deck kind of situation in that kind of community building stage and the product building stage, depending on you know, whatever stage you're at. And, and then it just has to be something that we keep kind of codifying and making more and more principled over time. One of the hardest things is to codify and put the arithmetic around community building and community development. You, you can't, like nobody has a formula for it. Nobody can, there is no, there's no number, right? Like, like the way GTM is a science, right? Like you, you get MQLs and, and, and you get like, you do X number of webinars and then you have like, uh, you need to have your first call within a week and then your sales cycle should be less than two months. And then you have predictable revenue that you can kind of keep doing, right? Like GTM is a science. Community is not that because everybody's, impact and way of doing community is different. So from the very beginning and continuously through the lifetime of the company, you have to find your way of codifying and making that piece repeatable, right? It's like, this is what works, this is why it works, and this is how we make this scalable, right? Uh, And you need to kind of keep answering that question because as the organization grows, as people become more siloed into what they're doing, you're still going to need to do it. Because you understand what you understand what works and why it works, but the how you make it scalable, that part is going to change with every checkpoint, right? So I think if I could go back in time, I would tell ourselves that, right? That you just have to keep doing this because it's been we've continuously kept doing it, which is why we are where we are today. But in hindsight, it would have smoothened things out and maybe accelerated a lot of things if we knew that this is just something that we have to stay ahead of and keep thinking more about. Uh, and we're not going to get this learning from anywhere else, right? This is not learning that this is a problem we have to keep solving. Uh, we're not going to get this from, you're not going to get this from investors or from from the community or playbooks and blog posts that people have created or books that people have written. It's going to be like our unique journey and every kind of community-oriented company's unique journey in unlocking that and codifying it. 
So I would say that's kind of that's kind of one meta thought here. I was thinking about it uh, from kind of going back to um, just early kind of launch from that phase of you know sort of one very tangible thing that I remembered happened. Uh, I think when we were and this relates a little bit to our, our previous question of how we launched and how we kind of went out with it, which was that when we kind of uh, thought about what was cool about, you know, how we're going to showcase this and what was exciting and what were the technical sort of, what were the things we could show off in a nice way in terms of the technical challenges that we've solved. We had certain ideas about what was what was cool. And it was very, it was a very interesting learning journey for us, actually, you know, almost prior to launch when we were talking to a few people in the community about uh, the stuff that we had built. And the learning was very, it was the reactions and sort of what people thought were cool were actually different from our, what we thought were cool. And I think that was a big learning because sometimes I think as the founders and as people building the product, you sort of start thinking that the one that's most technically complicated is the coolest thing. And then we actually learned that some of the very simple things, which was kind of just sprinkled on top was what really caught people's eye. And you know, we would have probably ignored that. It would have probably actually taken us in a completely different trajectory because there are a few windows that you need, you know, you have to sort of capitalize on. And that it helped us kind of really to learn that, hey, ah, what we think is cool may not actually be the exact same thing as what someone else thinks is cool. And it's good to kind of check and correct that and build that into everything from whether it's website, docs, even product experience, right? So I think that was the other learning that we had in that very early phase. I love the focus on the users and not just what the like team wants to build. Because I think one thing that we see with technical founders is this love of building complicated, beautiful technical products, but they're not super informed by users. I wanted to talk a bit about team because both of you kind of talked about this importance of developer experience, but obviously as a, a company scales, you need to figure out how kind of that's embedded in the culture of Asura and how everybody at the company knows how to like build, be like relentlessly focused on community and developer experience. And how do you hire for that? Like we've seen some companies that will hire from their own communities and others that will look for certain traits, but like how, what is like your philosophy been on hiring people in that will uphold the Hasura values? I think like articulating values is kind of the first step which is, you know, what are our values? Like articulating that and refining those definitions is important as the first step. And then you can start to kind of hire for those values. So for us, our values are growth and ownership from a startup point of view, empathy, craftsmanship, and, and then our definition for what this, what these values mean. And then, of course, we can kind of start to incorporate that in the hiring process. There's kind of this other element to it also, which is that I, I think, especially when we're, growing and especially for kind of technical founders and you know like you you created the open source project and as an initial group of people and now you're kind of hiring more people i think another important piece is also that you're going to be working with somebody else 8 10 12 15 hour days right i mean sometimes right not not all the time but you know it depends they'll be in your space on slack or whatever all the time you want to make sure that that working experience will actually be positive. There will be mutual learning all the time. Like, I think like one might get tempted to kind of hire by prior experience or by skill set or by their performance in a particular test. 
but for different roles, I think it becomes important for for different types of there are different ways to test for this, right? To play out what working with them would be like, right? Uh, both for you as kind of founders, but for you as a person in the company as well, right? Like from all points of view, what that experience would be like. And that kind of really the exercise of those values to a degree. But then also you are actually playing out those values. It's not like a checkbox that you can run on saying that, oh yeah, they exhibit craftsmanship check, right? It's more like, will I learn about like craftsmanship from them day on day, right? Will I learn about newer ways of unlocking empathy for business value day on day? Will I learn about how to take ownership in increasingly complex environments day on day from them, right? So it's like, I think that needs to be played out as well. And the way that one might hire for this is by being able to kind of test for that at a certain time scale. So that's the way that I think about it. No, having said that, I think we've also hired from the community and that's always been really, really great for us. Because, because that, that's an automatic alignment of, of a lot of that exact 100%. Yeah, and also because the footprint of Hasura from a, you know, because it ends up being that critical piece of software that's sort of in everything. We've all, like, it's, it's you know, people from the community sort of, again, like, sort of think in Hasura right from the beginning. And that's always been very helpful for us across, you know, across multiple roles and like all the way from leadership to IC level folks in different teams. We've seen that come in very, very handy. And it's something that, you know, it's amazing that we get to do that, you know, being an open source company, big benefit. Yeah. So let's talk about more on the product market fits phase. That's a Big transition point. I know a lot of companies struggle with a lot, especially open source companies, because now you have an even more complicated, you know, team management, yep. things, all the stuff to figure out. Um, maybe touch upon like, what is the biggest things you have to learn to do first? Because, okay, now GraphQL, we, we launched it without Hasura. People love it. Like you said, you start looking for mission critical workloads. I imagine that's not like a, it, it just not just comes by itself, right? And now you even have to figure out what to sell. Talk about that journey. What what is the first things you try as a commercial product? And what are the biggest learnings you had on that journey? I think we had a hypothesis going in in terms of like how we'd monetize Hasura. And what so we were kind of looking for that when we were also talking to people in terms of are they saying the same things? And you know, so when you're running Hasura in production, what is the kind of stuff? So what is kind of so roughly it ends up bucketing into that whole operation and running Hasura at scale. So we would kind of in that early phase, just sort of keep a lookout for those things and like involve people as we started building it. Like we started building our commercial features, I would say, I don't know, six, eight months after we launched the open source, Tanmay, is that accurate? I think, yeah. So during that first, yeah, I guess the first six, eight months, we kept kind of, we had that hypothesis. We made sure we were like almost like selectively seeing who was talking about those and like making sure we kept in close touch with them. And they, I wouldn't say design partners, but they were heavily involved in conversations while we were building out the first set of features that would be part of our commercial offering. The other thing I'd like to mention is that we always intended for this to be a product and a company. So it's a little bit different because I know for a lot of open source founders, it's like that there's an open source project that takes off and then you sort of think about like, okay, how do we commercialize this? That was not really the case for us because we went into it a little bit like intentionally so we thought like we were thinking about it from day one so yeah so that was sort of the the way we started out like keeping these folks close you know making sure that we would would almost like watch out for phrases that sounded like you know this was 
mission critical usage and like proactively actually bring them into our uh, orbit, like talk to them. So that was kind of how we started building it out. And they automatically became the first few customers as well. So all of that kind of, and yeah, we launched our commercial product, I think early 2020. So it was already kind of like, I think the pandemic was like right around the corner. (laughs) So it was all online and, you know, we would just, uh, people would just start trialing it out, these early customers who were interested. So yeah, that was sort of how we started out. The first year I would say was, just just doing more of that and then at some point during that year we hired our first sales we've hired a tiny sales team like one um, head of sales one sales rep and one SDR and sort of you know use those early learnings to then start like repeating that journey with other people Um, so that's how that first year of monetization kind of played out and also like in terms of building what went into the monetizable product plus one to what Rodash was saying and I think um, maybe maybe slightly slightly different way of saying some of the similar things is also that the most important thing to figure out is like what kind of GTM you want to have. Having some hypotheses around it and then correcting it because it's not going to be the same. You know, do you want it to be entirely product-led, practitioner-led, enterprise sales heavy? What is the journey that you want to have, right? Like, do you want to have like open source users that are mission critical that are then, or like open source users that are actively using it, upgrading to kind of commercial version and then kind of continuing to use that, right? Do you want to have consumption-based pricing around it or not consumption-based pricing around it? So I think like taking, like working through those dimensions from an end user point of view of like uh, who you're targeting and from their point of view, like how they're consuming the commercial product, I think I think becomes very important because there's very different answers depending on what you want to do, right? Like there's different amounts of open source to commercial differentiation that you might want to bring to the product. Uh, or the way that you bring that differentiation to the product or the way that you monetize it. So all of that kind of depends a lot on answering those those questions of how you want the journey, the, the GTM part. So taking a point of view there is important. Awesome. So I think last question, and also I know you also there's a new conference coming up that you want to plug about too. So let's just do both of them. So the favorite question we asked at the very end is what is the, the biggest advice you'll give other open source founders, maybe just starting off, like you back in 2016, maybe 17, 18, what are the things you would tell your own version or other folks that you know, uh, the advice you give? And also talk about our confidence as well. It doesn't get easier. I don't know if this is a, if this is just for open source founders or just founders in general. So I think the one piece of advice is that you have to prioritize like some good habits early on <laughs> because it's uh, it's always harder to build them. It's always harder to build those into, you know, your life later. So it's very important to know that it is. You've chosen this path. It's a hard path. It's not going to be, it's not going to get easier. So just yeah, prioritize some good habits early on, whatever that is for you, you know. Yeah, if you play a sport, then make sure you continue to play a sport. If you're if you meditate or whatever it is that you do for you know your own time and making sure you stay physically and mentally fit during the entire time, just make sure you do those early because they're gonna come in handy. That's my one advice for founders listening in. I think uh, I'll talk about the conference, I think, after Tanmay shares his advice. I think for open source founders specifically, I would say my first piece of advice would be don't. Like, don't, don't. <laughs> and uh, if you are, then dig really deep in 
into the why you wanted to be open source and leverage that to your like make that a part of your company and like make that a part of your strategy very deeply and you're going to have to keep revisiting it and keep doing it and it's it's going to be a different solution for different people so it's going to be hard it's going to be a lot of joy there's going to be it's going to work in a lot of different ways and that's going to be amazing but get very super clear about the why and the more it aligns with like the founding team's values and the people who are hired the better it is and by the way when i when i say values it doesn't mean that you have to be like you know you're you're, you're quote unquote an open source zealot right that's not what i mean what i mean is like the alignment of why open source is important to the company which can have different answers for different people so that's the advice don't or otherwise if you are then dig deep and make that a part of your thing and i guess like for us what we're now looking forward to over the next few weeks we have some major launches coming up over the coming weeks the first is around streaming our ability to handle large over graphql apis our ability to handle large volume of data and a large volume of uh, real time data fast moving data so as the amount of data that's increasing in the world you need apis that can handle that amount of large data and also the amount of fast moving data is increasing so you want an api that can handle fast moving data and still give you kind of performance security guarantees that you would want so that kind of big piece that we're working on we're calling it streaming subscriptions streaming subscriptions on graphql and then we have a conference coming up um, which we call the enterprise graphql conference yeah it's a half day virtual conference happening on the 10th of november and it's it's very interesting because it's the one place where really we explore topics around data and graphql and how these two how graphql is playing a really big role in how you think about your application kind of data first and there's a lot of work happening of course that's how that's sort of very tied to our core philosophy but it's not just us there's some fascinating work happening in some huge like lots of large companies including one of the largest banks in the world and i think we're getting a bunch of these speakers who are using graphql for these large to unlock productivity at scale with data kind of being at the center of it so it's going to be lots of conversations curated you know high quality conversations over uh, just a few hours so we're looking really looking forward to you know putting that out soon and um, having these conversations awesome well this was fantastic we were so excited to have both of you on and i think founders are going to learn a ton from all of your insights oh, that's awesome thanks for having us yeah thank you so much for having us this was a lot of fun